Well, good morning, my friends, and I want to invite you to gather around God's Word this morning. Uh, We're continuing our study in Matthew's Gospel, but first, I want to introduce you to someone from the halls of history. Uh, His name is Marcion. Marcion uh, was born in 85 AD in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was the son of of a Christian bishop And he grew up very wealthy, which to me is a paradox I cannot figure out, but it's what the history books say. Long story short, Marcion moved to Rome as a middle-aged man, and he joined a Christian church. And being that he was very, very wealthy, Marcion gave a generous gift to this church, something like 100 years' worth of income for the average person. Uh, However, Marcion's uh, time in the Roman church was was pretty short-lived. Within 10 years of this happening... The church in Rome actually gave Marcion his money back, and they went on to uh, excommunicate him from the church in general. And that may seem to you extreme or even ungrateful, but let me explain. Marcion turned out to be one of the uh, most infamous heretics in history, and he used his, his great wealth and really great charisma to teach people that, and here's the key, that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God as that in the New Testament. And Marcion, he worked tirelessly to teach young Christians that the Old Testament had to be separated from the teachings of Jesus. That's interesting, huh? One might ask, well, why did Marcion do this? Why did he feel the need to separate the Old Testament God and the Old Testament from the teachings of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you this. He did it for the same reason that people do it today. Uh, he, he read the Old Testament, he read about God's law, and he read about the righteous requirements and God's wrath for those who break his law. And Marcion thought to himself, this can't be the same God that Jesus calls Father. And so Marcion began to teach that the God of the Old Testament had, had different values than Jesus did. The way that, that Marcion accomplished this is that he took out his scissors and he began to remove all the parts of Scripture which linked the Old and the New Testament. And, and while he was at it, Marcion removed anything that he deemed to be a negative message, right? So he just said, if it's a negative message, I don't want it. Marcion wanted to make sure that the Bible was uplifting and positive, that it optimistically inspired people. Marcion wanted to make sure that the Bible didn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. What was left was, when he got done, was a, a Bible without the law, a God who didn't demand righteousness. There was no mention of God's wrath, no punishment of any kind, and certainly no talk of hell. Only a Jesus who wanted to be your friend, a Jesus who wanted to save you, but not a whole lot of mention of what he wanted to save you from, right? Over the centuries... Um, This is a teaching that has continued to pop up again and again in different places from different preachers. Uh, It is called Martianism, right? And and, and I bet if you sit down and think today, you might be able to think of some preachers or some teachers who you think uh, probably uh, exhibit tendencies of Martianism. Uh, We see it when, when the church teaches the good news of the gospel without teaching the bad news of sin. We see it when we try to disconnect the God of the Old Testament 
from our Lord Christ Jesus in the new, when people don't teach the love of Jesus, uh, or excuse me, when people teach the love of Jesus, but they don't teach the righteous requirements of the law. Uh, and this brings me to a very interesting question for you. That question I have for you today is this. How do you think the Old Testament and the New Testament work together? Do you think that God has changed? Do you think that God's standards of righteousness have changed? I remember uh, a few years back, uh, Weston got a call from a, an angry mother. And, and really, the, the call was something along the idea she wanted to complain about how our teachings in our student ministries on human sexuality were outdated. As if somehow the standards of God had evolved to agree with culture, but we just simply had refused to do so. So here's the question. How does Jesus think about the Old Testament? That's, 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 that's going to be the gist of what we're talking about today. How does Jesus think about the Old Testament? How does Jesus think about the righteous law of God? And in order to get at that, we're going to look at Scripture today. So I invite you to stand, if you're able, and to read with me from Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to try to understand Jesus' teaching on the law and prophets. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Before we read, we'll pause for prayer. So join me. Let's do that now. Father, may you be glorified in our reading of your word. May you by your spirit quicken our hearts that we might understand it rightly. And we might there apply it to our lives for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name and all the church said, amen. Let's read together beginning in the 17th verse of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Church, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever, and this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Jesus is... In this reading, in the, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are, are Jesus giving instructions to his disciples about how to live as citizens of heaven. And the Beatitudes go something like, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who grieve, blessed are the merciful, and so on and so on. And if you'd like to hear about those, uh, we've taught about them recently, you can find them. But Jesus says that if, if we live this way, if we live based on the Beatitudes, if we live as citizens of the kingdom, we will be persecuted, that the world will reject you. But nonetheless, what, what Jesus teaches in this Sermon on the Mount, what he said just leading up to our reading today is that citizens of, of heaven must continue to have influence upon the world. And he discussed that influence as we read together last week as salt and light. 
Like salt, we, we have a preserving influence of the world. Like light, we have uh, a, a, an influence of shining the hope of Jesus into the world. It appears that at this point in the sermon, Jesus became concerned that his audience might be misunderstanding what he was saying in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus' concern seems to be that his audience might think that his teaching is somehow new, that, that the teaching of Jesus, this great Messiah who's come, this, this new king, has, has somehow differentiated itself from God's law, that, that it has nothing to do with God's law. Now, if that was the case, the followers of Jesus could simply throw out the Old Testament like Marcion did, right? And simply keep the Beatitudes and, and, and continue to be salt and light somehow. And, you know, th th there would be no link between the old and the new. So look what Jesus says when he anticipates that this might be what they're thinking. He says, it's verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Don't think that Jesus came to abolish the law of the prophets. Listen, I, I do wish Marcion had understood this idea. Uh, in fact, he actually reversed those orders. He says, do not think that I have come to fulfill it, but to abolish it. He changed it to actually read backwards what it, Jesus actually said. So, so let me ask you this question as we begin to work through the logic of what this means. What does Jesus mean when he says law and prophets? Right, because that's what he, that's, that's how he says it. The Jew in that day would have understood the phrase "law and prophets" to be referring to the Hebrew Bible. That's that's what they would have called the entirety of the New Testament. They would have called it the Law and Prophets. Right? Jesus is emphasizing that the law of the in the Old Testament is not abolished. He's not doing away with what was written. Instead, Jesus says he fulfills. The law and prophets, which, which for you might leave just as many questions. What does it mean? In what ways does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Like if you had to answer that question today, you're a Christian. You sit in church quite often. How would you tell someone that, that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets? Well, it, it's kind of a multifaceted answer. There's a few things. Uh, first off, let's talk about the Old Testament prophecy, Right? It's easy to see how Jesus fulfills all the prophets, all the prophecy. There is a prophetic function in the Old Testament that's always anticipating. It's always longing for the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all of the prophecy of the Old Testament. But that's not all it means here. This is more than about fulfilling the prophets. We, we can also talk about how Jesus fulfills the law as it relates to the sacrificial system of, the, of Israel, of the, of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system, if you remember, it was a way for Israel to atone for its sin. But, but it was always really pointing to the cross. And Jesus, once and for all, fulfills all sacrifice that our sin requires. And, and that's why we don't have any kind of a sacrificial system anymore. Jesus fulfills that. He's, he's the ultimate and the final sacrifice but still, and, and hear me here, Jesus fulfills the law in another way. And I think this final way is the most important to our text. When Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them, what he means by fulfillment is that he perfectly embodied the law. 
Like, like every little detail of the law, every little standard of God has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has, has no sin. Jesus fulfills, so we go back, all prophecy. He, he fulfills all the sacrificial uh, system that, that was pointing to in the Old Testament. And he fulfills every letter of the righteous law of God. And you, you cannot separate the Old Testament from the New because every pen stroke of the Old Testament is anticipating Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. You got to understand that Jesus is not God's correction of the Old Testament. I think that's the way some people see it. Like, like, like there was the Old Testament and it, and it got away from God and so, so Jesus had to come and correct it. But rather, like the Old Testament is anticipating in every pen stroke the coming of Christ. And so we are left with an interesting question, aren't we? If Jesus fulfills the law and prophets, what then is our relationship with the righteous law of God? I guess that's my question for you. How do you understand the law of God and it's how a Christian should see the Old Testament laws? Are, are those Old Testament laws uh, void now that Jesus fulfilled them? No. Because what Jesus says is that he didn't come to abolish the law. That means that the righteous law of God from the Old Testament is still relevant. God's law is, is not old-fashioned. It's not outdated. It doesn't evolve with culture. Look at verse 18. It's going to talk more about that idea. Here's what it says. For truly I say to you, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, so, so how long will the law of God stand? Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away. That means that God's standards in the Old Testament law, they're the sta same standards in the New Testament, right? They're the same standards today. They're the same standards tomorrow. So did Jesus change the law when he fulfilled the law? no. And he goes to great lengths to say, look at this, Jesus goes to great lengths to say, you shouldn't change God's standards either. You shouldn't relax them, even one iota or one dot. Now, iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, right? Think, think of the English letter I, right? It's, it's kind of similar. Until heaven and earth pass away, the law of God won't change even the smallest letter, but Jesus warns us about teachers who will change the law. He said that there will be some, these teachers that will come and that they will, way he uses the word relax, that they're going to relax the letters of the law. And, and what Jesus says is that the, the people who do that are the least in the kingdom. Read with me verse 19. This is what it says. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, as I, as I kind of started uh, this sermon, I, I, got, I got to this point and I, it was really easy. I had this list of ways in which I knew other preachers had relaxed the law. Like I was like, oh, I could talk about Joel Osteen here. You know, talk about all my favorite heretics in the modern church and how they had to relax the law and they would teach people. And I came to the realization and the conviction that it's easy to point at someone else here. We, we love to pile on others. 
Sure, we could find ways others have relaxed the law, but we need to ask ourselves serious questions. Are there places, and this is my question for you right now, is are there places where you and I have relaxed the law of God? So I asked myself that real seriously. And there there were some things that came to my mind. I think we have a tendency to to minimize greed. What about gluttony? Do you think think that gluttony is a big deal? Why not? Have you relaxed it? What about slothfulness? We might call that laziness. God's word calls it sin. Why does it not bother us the way other sins do? What about keeping the Sabbath day holy? Some of us have relaxed scriptures teaching on on the Sabbath. We We don't treat it as a day of worship and rest. We treat it as a second Saturday. And we've taught our children to do the same. It's a day for ball games. Church, if we have a late pitch. That's no big deal, right? Certainly we haven't relaxed the law of God. You see, if you want to talk about a group of people who relax the law and teach others to do the same, all you have to do is honestly examine your own heart. Now here's where it gets tricky. Verse 20, read it with me. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives us the standard. Your righteousness, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think when I say that, you hear me say something like, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds the bad guys of the Bible, or Jesus' enemies, but, but no, that's not who necessarily the scribes and the Pharisees are, so let's be more specific about what he's saying and who are the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were the academic scholars who were responsible for handling the law. You see, the scribes would, would, would interpret and copy the law. It, it was their responsibility to know it better than anybody else. They struggled with all the fine points of the law. To be, to be a scribe, it was like an assigned office that you accomplished. It, it wasn't just something you wanted to be. There was, there was training. There was testing. And only the scribes could write the law of God upon a scroll. They'd use a feathered pen, and they would be the ones who would know if mistakes were made. That was their responsibility, and they were, they were respected for their knowledge of the law. The Pharisee, on the other hand, um, it's not an office like a scribe. You see, the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. The Sadducees were the progressive sect of Judaism, and the Pharisees were the conservative sect. The word Pharisee comes from a a root word, which means separated. So the Pharisees were separatists. That's what you need to understand. They separated themselves from anyone who did not share their unique convictions, and and they certainly avoided non-Jews at all costs, lest they become defiled. Uh, where the scribe was an, an academic who knew the law back and forth. The Pharisees, on the other hand, 
they were people who were committed to keeping the law in the way that they lived their lives, right? They, they were militantly committed to the law. The, the Pharisees estimated that there were 613 commandments in the laws and the prophets. But over time, they begin to add to these 613 laws that they found in the Bible, right? Lest they might mistakenly break one of the 613, what if you made a law that kept you one step further away from breaking those 613? That's exactly what they did. They interpreted the laws and they came up with new laws and they called it all Mishnah. They had literally, literally thousands of new commandments. They worked themselves to the bone in obedience to the law, and, and, and it literally defined who the Pharisee was. It wasn't enough that they would try to keep the Sabbath day holy. The, the Pharisees would argue over whether or not you could move a lamp on the Sabbath. Was that work? Whether, uh, whether a tailor had committed a sin when he carried a sewing needle in his pocket, or if a man broke the Sabbath by wearing his false teeth, you see, when Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the law and he tells his disciples that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, what would the disciples have heard? It would have been paralyzing. It would have been an impossible task. You know, and, and I want to tell you that this church, that that is exactly the point. The arrogance of the Pharisees was the belief that they could keep the law. Their blunder was to believe that, that the law was a tool for righteousness. That's what they believed. They believed that the law was a tool for righteousness. My friends, I need you to know that um, your Father in heaven uses the law to expose you. The law is the righteousness of God. God loves the law. Jesus loves the law. It is the perfect standard of right living. Jesus is not going to change the law, not one dot or one iota, because he loves it. Everyone ever born will be exposed by the law, and it will expose you as a sinner. It exposed Jesus too. And hear me out, because it exposed his perfection in that he fulfilled it. And Jesus wants his disciples to know this, that the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to perfectly fulfill the law in every way, in a way that's so much more than the Pharisees, and it's literally impossible. So what do you do? You need moral perfection to enter the kingdom of God, and it's unobtainable. The only way, the only person ever to achieve it was was Jesus, which brings us to the heart and the beauty of the gospel. The law exposes you as being unfit to be a citizen of heaven. The only one fit to be a citizen of heaven, according to this, is Jesus. He alone has personal righteousness. And Jesus takes that righteousness that he alone has, and as if it was a garment or a piece of clothing, Jesus places that righteousness upon those who repent of their sins and have faith in him. It's as if you, you owe an impossible debt that you could never pay because you broke the law of God. 
but by faith Jesus credits uh, your account. He gives you all the righteousness you need to be greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. The righteousness that you need in your life is not your own. It's what Martin Luther calls, um, he calls it an alien righteousness. And, and he's not talking about space aliens here. It simply means that, that that righteousness comes somewhere outside of you. It's foreign. Jesus gives you his righteousness when you place your hope and faith in him and repent of your sins. So allow me to summarize our teaching this morning as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord today. A man named Marcion wanted to get rid of the law. He didn't want people to hear the bad news of sin. The problem is he did not understand how God used the law. You see, the law is not a tool by which you make yourself righteous. It is a, a tool used by the Lord to expose your need for Jesus. Jesus says, make no mistake, I didn't come to abolish the law. Why would I do that? I love the law. I came to fulfill it. And thank God that he did. Because no one ever had, and that includes you. Plenty have given their life in trying to fulfill the law. The scribes, they studied it relentlessly. The Pharisees worked to keep every letter, and Jesus said it's not enough. Your righteousness has to exceed that. Furthermore, it's, like we said, it's not even the purpose of the law. And so as you come to the table of the Lord this morning, I ask you to examine your own heart. I ask you to recognize that you are a sinner, that you are incapable of personal righteousness, that you cannot keep the law, but at the same time, you are called to strive for it, because the striving is what honors the Lord. And when you fail, as we all have and we all will, you are to ask the Lord for forgiveness, but find grace in his hope and love. The table reminds us that the work of Christ does not fail. It reminds us that the cross of Jesus atoned for our sins. And so I want to invite you now to take a moment, each of us, to confess our sins before the Lord and to forgive those that have wronged us and to remember today all that Jesus has fulfilled for us. I'm going to ask that we take a little time of silent prayer so that you can do just that today. So let's, let's bow our heads and, and, and meditate before we come to the table.
Father, we thank you for the law because without it, we might mistakenly think that we are righteous. But because we have the law, we, we know that we have a very real problem. We have failed to keep your standard. And your word tells us that the wages for that sin is, is death. What hope is there for us then? Our hope is in the fact that Christ fulfilled the law. And this table, in many ways, memorializes that. We remember that, that Christ, in living his perfect life and dying, a death that we deserved has made a way for us to have peace with God. So our hearts are drawn to worship. Christ, to you be all glory and honor in your church forever and ever. And as we eat upon this table, may we be reminded of your grace and love for us. In Christ's name we pray. And the church said, amen. amen.